And let's continue praying that together. Well, Lord, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. You have all authority over every planet, over every star, over every solar system. You have all authority over all people and nations and kings and kingdoms. And we humbly submit to your authority today. We pray you drench us with humility. Come and conquer every rival desire in us. Come and conquer everything that resists your holiness. Help us to lay down our pride and our self-sufficiency and help us to listen as you speak to us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is full of your glory. Speak to us today and we pray that prayer not because we want you to speak to us and then we'll decide whether we want to obey you or not. But we want you to speak to us because we want to. We desire to obey you. We want to please you more than anything else in this life. And so would you speak to us from your word. Help us to see. Help us to know and help us to submit to the truth of your word. Speak to us, not so that we might evaluate your truth, whether we want or think it's relevant for our lives, but help us to help us to hear and listen as doers of your word, as obeyers of you. We need your help with that. We need your grace in this moment in a big way. And so as we open your word, Lord, would you speak to us and change us? And I pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, with the expectation that God speaks through his word, let's turn together to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's all right. But I hope you'll find one of those hardback Bibles in the pew rack in front of you because I really want you to have this passage open as we study it today. I want you to see God's Word for yourself as I point to particular verses and phrases in the text. So if you, if you get one of those hardback Bibles out of the pew rack, James chapter 2 is on page 1012, 1012 in the hardback Bible in the pew rack. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. We've been making our way through the book of James, and from the very first week, I told you that studying the book of James is like getting in the ring with a heavyweight boxer. The punches are hard, and they are relentless. And so are you ready to get woken up this morning by these punches, by these blows? James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works And not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. May God carve its truth on our hearts. Well, this passage really gets to the heart of the message of the book of James. If you haven't been here for the past seven or eight weeks as we've been studying the book of James, this is a good time to jump in with us because this really gets at the heart of what James is teaching. James teaches here that true faith manifests itself in a life of obedience. You see, James will not allow us to claim to have faith And live our lives as if that faith makes no difference. Faith is not something we get at some point in our lives and then forget about. Faith is not not something you put on the shelf and then never use again. Faith isn't something you put in the junk drawer and never use again. No, faith is active. Faith is a working thing. Faith demonstrates itself by actions. Now, before we dive into the details of this passage, we have to address an important question, really the question when you come to this passage, and that question is, does James here contradict what Paul teaches about justification by faith alone? You see, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this passage, I think, should cause a measure of discomfort when you read it. We believe all of Scripture is breathed out by God and thus it is free from error. It is free from contradiction. But James and Paul seem to teach two different things. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. In fact, the book of Galatians is a strong condemnation for those who were teaching that justification is by works and not by faith alone. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would say, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And yet here in James chapter 2, verse 24, the clearest place in this passage, James teaches that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so we have what seems like a blatant contradiction. 
Paul says that justification is by faith and not by works. And James says that justification is by works and not by faith alone. And so which one of them is right? This question has caused many to declare that James is wrong and shouldn't be included in the canon of Scripture. The most famous example is that of the reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther is well known to have criticized the book of James for this very problem. In fact, here's what Luther said. He said, quote, Many have labored to reconcile James and Paul, just as Philip Melanchthon has done in his apology, but not with real, not with real success. He says, These are at odds. Faith justifies, Romans 3.28. Faith does not justify, James 2.24. Luther says, if there's anyone who can bring these into harmony with one another, I will set my clergy hat on him and let him scold me as a fool. Now, I don't claim to be, nor am I, smarter than Martin Luther, and I will not scold him as a fool. But I'm going to show you how James and Paul are not at odds, but rather friends. In fact, at the end of this sermon... I'm going to quote Luther's own words because it's the clearest quote I could find from anyone I think about what James is teaching. I'm going to quote Luther himself to show that Luther believed and totally agreed with what James is teaching in this passage. And so before we jump into the text, let me briefly make three statements that I think will serve to clarify and show that this is no contradiction at all, and I hope that this will strengthen your faith in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. God's Word does not contradict itself, but always teaches the truth. So this is all introduction, sort of clearing away the brush so that we can then jump in the text and honestly see what God is saying in this passage. Three statements that will serve to clear up this apparent contradiction. Number one, James and Paul are combating different enemies of the gospel. James and Paul are combating different enemies of the gospel. And so it's clear from the context of their writings that James and Paul are addressing two totally different errors. Paul was combating the tendency and temptation toward legalism. See, legalists seek to earn God's favor, earn their salvation by works of righteousness done in their own strength, done in their own flesh. And Paul wrote to clearly communicate that we are not accepted by God on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. And Paul would say, anyone teaches anything other than this, let them be anathema. But James was combating something totally different. He was combating the tendency and temptation toward license, or what some scholars call antinomianism, being against the law, a sort of lawless living. James wrote to clearly communicate that true Christians, those who have been born again by the will of God, would never say things like, well, since God forgives me on the basis of Christ's work, then I'll just do whatever I please. I can just live any way I want to because I'm already accepted by God. James is combating a merely confessed faith that doesn't have accompanying fruits. You see, James and Paul are not opposed to each other. They're not in combat hand-to-hand -hand with each other, but rather they're both standing on the same gospel, back-to-back, -back, combating different enemies of the gospel. 
James and Paul are fending off opponents that are coming from various angles. Paul denies the need for pre-conversion works, and James emphasizes the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. So James and Paul are combating different attacks on the one true gospel. Here's the second statement to clear up this apparent contradiction. James and Paul use the same words in different ways. James and Paul use the same words, but they use those words in different ways. This is really the most important point in seeing that James and Paul do not contradict each other. Words only have meaning in context. So if you go to England and you start talking about playing football and you come out with shoulder pads and a helmet on, you're going to be very surprised when you get there to play football. The word football only has meaning in its context. And so we have to look close at what James and Paul meant when they use words like faith and works and justification. Let me give you some examples. We can't deal with this exhaustively, but let me just point you to a few. When James uses the word faith in these verses, most of the time he is adopting his opponent's definition of faith. We're going to see this in the text in just a moment, but James is referring to someone who merely claims to have faith. When James says that faith alone does not justify, he's not referring to true faith. He's referring to a dead faith, a useless faith. However, when Paul says that justification is by faith alone, he is referring to true faith, faith that actually does embrace Jesus as Lord. When Paul speaks of works, he most often uses the phrase works of the law. Works for Paul were attempts to earn favor with God by keeping the law, by being circumcised, by following some rituals. However, James is clearly using the word works in a different sense. James isn't referring to being circumcised or to keeping the law. James is referring to acts of love. Works for James were motivated by and expressions of true faith. This becomes clear in James' illustration in verses 15 and 16, where what James is talking about is feeding the hungry and clothing people who don't have sufficient covering. For James, works are the fruit of true faith, not the root of true faith. And so it's important to read James and Paul in their context and realize that they're using the same words, but they're using them in in very different ways. Well, the third statement is really a summary statement, and I just want to say it as clearly as I know how. James and Paul, number three, are in complete agreement with one another. James and Paul are in total agreement with one another. So while they emphasize different aspects of the gospel, their message is in complete harmony together. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, here's what Paul said. Paul said, circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Love. This is what Paul taught over and over again, that faith is active. Faith should evidence itself in deeds of love and compassion, and that's exactly what James teaches. In fact, you could put that as a a title over this section, faith working through love. When you read James and Paul rightly, they complement each other, not contradict each other. Well, 
enough of that introduction. If you want to talk more about the relation between James and Paul, I'd be happy to talk to you more about it. But let's look into the text itself and notice what James teaches about the nature of true faith. James leaves no doubt as to his main thesis in this section. Notice no less than five times in this passage, James states his main point. Verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You get the main point? The point is that faith, which does not evidence itself in actions, is not real faith. It's of no use, James says. An unemployed faith is a dead faith. A workless faith is no faith at all. So let me draw your attention to three truths that James makes about the nature of true faith. What is faith? Well, James tells us what it is and what it is not. Now, as we move through these three truths, let me just encourage you to allow God's Word to examine your faith. This is the point of this passage, to allow God's Word to examine our faith. Like, you're already here. I'm glad you're here. So why not actually do what the text is calling us to do? Let's don't waste this next 15 minutes or so to evaluate our faith. Think about, evaluate your faith, particularly as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because one of the truths about the Lord's Supper is that it's, it's only for those with true faith. And so this is a perfect passage to study before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Is our faith real and true? Well, here's some some truths about true faith that we can use to evaluate our own faith. Here's the first truth. James says true faith is more than a mere claim. True faith is more than a mere claim to have faith. Notice the rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The word says is the key to understanding James's point here. James is addressing a mere claim to have faith. He's not addressing faith itself. James doesn't say if someone has faith. No, he says if someone says he has faith. But notice the second question in verse 14. James asks, can that faith save him? So again, James is not asking if true faith is able to save. No, he's asking if a mere claim to faith saves. Clearly, the answer to James' question is no. A mere claim to have faith cannot save. Claiming to have faith And actually having faith are two totally different things. True faith is more than merely claiming to have faith. Notice how James drives this point home with an illustration in verses 15 and 16. And notice this is an illustration of James's point. James asks us to suppose 
that a fellow Christian is lacking the basic necessities of life. They are lacking food and clothing. If you see their need and you only express concern for them, if you only wish them well without actually providing something that they need, James says you've done them no good. If you have the ability to help someone in need and all you do is wish them well, your words are meaningless to help them. For James, actions really do speak louder than words. So notice James' conclusion to this illustration in verse 17. So also, in other words, in the same way that merely saying, I hope you get some food, I hope you get some clothing, and doing nothing for them, in the same way that that's useless to help them, James says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In other words, a merely said faith is a dead faith. A merely said faith is a dead faith. One of the most frightening verses in all the Bible to me is Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. You see, Jesus taught that it's possible to say, to claim that He's our Lord and not really be His follower. It's possible for someone to live their entire life claiming to be a Christian and really not be. And if that's true, there's a lot of people today who are claiming to have faith who will be eternally condemned in hell. Because true faith is more than a mere claim to have faith. In just about every other area of life, we know this to be true, don't we? Claims have to be backed up by actions. Like wives, you know this, don't you? If your husband wakes up every morning and tells you how much he loves you, how special you are to him, but all through the rest of the day, he completely ignores you, cheats on you, fails to protect you, fails to provide for you, and puts you in great danger by his actions, how long would it take for you to realize that his claim to love you is a sham? No matter how sincere that claim, no matter how sincere the words If they're not backed up by actions, we know the words to be meaningless, to be empty. How many people have had a religious experience at some point in their life? Maybe they walked an aisle at the end of a church service. They prayed a prayer of salvation. They got baptized. They joined a church. And because of that experience, they now claim to be a Christian. If you ask them, they claim to be a Christian. They think that they will be in heaven for all eternity. And yet they don't have true faith. Their faith is a mere claim. James says their faith is dead. Evaluate yourself. Do you have true faith that evidences itself in deeds of love and compassion? Or do you merely claim to have faith? Do you merely claim to be a Christian? James is clear that true faith is more than merely claiming to be a Christian. As I think about this, I'm so thankful that the Father didn't just claim to love us and then leave it at that. 
No, He demonstrated His love for us. The Father demonstrated His love by, by actions, by sending His only Son to die for our sins. He proved His love by His action of crushing His Son. James says, merely saying you have faith is of no use. Merely saying you have faith is of no use. Here's the second truth. True faith is more than a mere agreement with truth. True faith is more than a mere claim to have faith, and it's also more than a mere agreement with truth. So in verse 18, James introduces the argument of an opponent. The opponent says, you have faith and I have works. In other words, James imagines that someone is going to argue that faith and works can be separated. Someone has faith and someone else has works. What's the big deal? We all have our own gifts. We all have our own strength, right? James's response is that the only way to prove that one has faith is by his deeds. Faith can only be verified by its fruit. It's the only way to show true faith. Faith cannot be demonstrated apart from works. Therefore, while we, while we need to distinguish between faith and works, it's impossible to separate them, James says. If you have faith, you will have works. Now, verse 19, I think, is the stinger. James pulls out the showstopper in verse 19. He says... You believe that God is one? You do well. It's almost as if James is setting us up here in verse 19. He mentions the most fundamental truth about God that you can mention. God is one. I think this is a direct quote from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jews would say the Shema multiple times a day. This is the most fundamental truth about God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not, we're not polytheists. We're not pantheists. We are monotheists. We believe there's one God. James says, you believe that? You believe that God is one? Good for you. Good for you, James says. And, and just when we think James is about to say something positive about his reader's faith, James says, even the demons believe and they shudder. James says, the devil agrees with orthodox theology. The devil agrees with the truth. Demons even tremble at the reality of the existence of God. Verse 19 gets at the heart of saving faith. What is true saving faith? Well, what we know from verse 19 is saving faith does not consist in agreeing with facts about God or with facts about the gospel. The devil knows the truth. The devil knows the truth. The devil could write the most accurate theology book in the world. And therefore, James's point is that true faith must be more than merely knowing the right doctrines. Orthodox understanding of the truth is no proof of true faith. Otherwise, the demons would be saved. You see, friends, knowing the truth and embracing the truth are two different things. Demons know the truth. They just refuse to love it and embrace it as their own. Being a Christian is not about agreeing with historical facts about Jesus. Listen, a person can say Jesus became a man. 
Jesus died for sinners. Jesus rose from the dead and not have genuine faith. Saving faith is not about agreeing that the gospel makes sense or sounds good. Saving faith is a personal embracing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a personal embracing of it. It's an embracing of it to say, this is mine. I love this truth. This is my life and this is my hope. That's what true and saving faith is. Let me give you an example. I agree with the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. If you asked me to take a test and that was part of it, I would get that question right. However, that agreement with the historical fact makes not one single bit of difference in my life. If I had never heard that George Washington existed or was the first president, nothing would change in my life. If you put a gun to my head and said, unless you claim that George Washington was not the first president of the United States, I'm going to shoot you, I would say, George Washington was not the first president of the United States because I don't care. (laughs) Right? It's sad that for many people who claim to be Christians who could answer all the right questions about Jesus, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died as a substitute on the cross. He rose from the grave by the power of God. Jesus is right now reigning over all by the right hand of God. People who could say all of the right things about Jesus, but if you remove these facts from their memory, it wouldn't make one bit of difference to the way they live their life. If you remove Jesus from your life, Would your life be that much different? That's the question of faith. Honestly, is your faith in Jesus that much different from your faith in George Washington? Do you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Does your faith evidence itself in acts of obedience? True faith is more than a mere agreement with facts. Facts are important. Listen, don't hear me saying facts aren't important. Facts are important. Truth about Jesus is essential. But James says mere intellectual assent to these truths is not enough. It's not true saving faith. Parents of young children, I think these first two truths are just so helpful in how we evaluate professions of faith in our children. Hey, listen, we should be glad when our children express a desire to be saved, a desire to follow Jesus. However, if there's no fruit accompanying the profession and the agreement, we must never give them false assurance. We must never declare them to be saved when there's no evidence, when there's no fruit. Church, these truths, I think, have a tremendous amount to say about how we evaluate the faith of new believers. James says true faith will be demonstrated, not just professed. And so let's be careful to never give someone a false assurance of salvation where there's no evidence. I think one of the most cruel and hateful practices in the modern church is the practice of declaring someone to be a Christian just because they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer at the end of a church service. Like, how many people are on our church roll? How many people are on our church roll who made at some point a profession of faith in Jesus years ago who now have no desire to actually do what Jesus says? James says their faith is meaningless. 
That faith is dead. It's, it's useless. Which leads to James' third point, third truth. Number three, true faith produces an obedient life. True faith produces something. True faith works something, and that is an obedient life. This is the point of the whole passage. Faith works. Faith in Jesus is active. It's, a, it's an active thing that produces obedience. And James has been driving that point home, but he does so even more with these illustrations in verses 21 through 26. He gives two examples to prove his point. Before we look at these examples, notice verse 20 again. <laughs> There's nothing subtle or gentle about James's rebuke here in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? The word translated foolish is the word, is the word empty. James is basically saying that his opponents are airheads, and since they don't get that faith without works, it's useless. He needs to give them some examples. He needs to show them from the Scripture that this is true. And so he gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Now, this is pure genius on James's part. Because by giving these two extreme examples, James is making a powerful point. Think about the difference between Abraham and Rahab. Like, could you get any more two different people than these two? Abraham was a man, Rahab a woman. Abraham a Jew, Rahab a Gentile. Abraham was a patriarch. Rahab a prostitute. Abraham was known for his godliness. Rahab known for her sinfulness. Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab was part of God's enemies. You see what James is doing in these contrasting examples? James is making this universal point. You see, if he would have just have given Abraham as an example, we would say, of course, right? Abraham's in a category by himself. Of course he demonstrated his faith by his works. I mean, Abraham is Abraham. However, if someone like Rahab could be saved and demonstrate her God-given faith by her works, then we should all expect our faith to be demonstrated as well. You see, here's what James is getting at. The question is, how do we know that Abraham and Rahab had faith? Right? This is the question of the text, I think. This is an important question. Like, how do you know you have faith? How do you know someone else has faith? How do we know Abraham and Rahab had faith? The answer we know they had faith because their faith was demonstrated by what they did. James says we know Abraham had genuine faith because when he was commanded by God, Abraham took his son to Mount Moriah and raised the knife. Abraham's faith was demonstrated. James actually says his faith was completed when Abraham proved that nothing was more important to him than God. Think about it. Abraham could have intentionally forgotten to pack the knife. Abraham could have ignored God's command. This is what we tend to do. Oh, surely God didn't mean that. James's point is that Genesis 22, the offering of Isaac, proves that Genesis 15, Abraham declared righteous by faith, was real. In Genesis 15, Abraham was declared to be right in God's sight. How do we know he was right in God's sight? Because Genesis 22 shows that his faith was real. We would, if Genesis 22 didn't exist, we would never know if Genesis 15 was genuine. Same point with Rahab. How do we know Rahab had true faith? 
Answer? Because she risked her life hiding the spies and actually tied the scarlet cord in her window. Her actions demonstrated that her faith in the God of Israel was authentic. Abraham and Rahab's faith was demonstrated to be true by their actions. And notice James' conclusion in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Without a spirit, a person is just a corpse, dead. Likewise, faith is dead, is a corpse without works to fill it with life. This is what James is teaching. Let me try to summarize what James is teaching as clearly as I know how. So if you've checked out at some point, if your mind is wondering what is going on for the rest of the day, let me draw you back for a second because this is very important to understand. We need to clearly say what James is and is not saying in this passage. James is not teaching that our salvation is dependent upon our works. But rather, James is teaching that our salvation is demonstrated by our works. James is not arguing that faith must be added to works, that works must be added to faith. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. You hear that? It's not faith plus works equals salvation. That's heresy. But rather, James is saying that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. Works are not the basis of salvation. Works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the necessary result of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. And so be very clear about this point. Acceptance with God, salvation, and eternal life with God was purchased at the cross by Jesus Christ. There is no works we can do to earn or deserve to be declared right in God's sight. Salvation is by faith alone. Faith is a gift of God whereby we embrace Jesus as our treasure. And that faith that saves, that faith that justifies, that God-given faith, that true faith manifests itself, demonstrates itself in a in acts of obedience, and a life of obedience to God. And so here's how Martin Luther said it. Here's how Martin Luther defined true faith, and I think he captures James' teaching perfectly. He wrote this in his preface to his commentary on Romans. He says, It is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly, it doesn't ask whether good works are to be done before the question's even asked. It's already done this and is constantly doing them. Luther says, whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. End quote. In other words, Luther says, faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. And that's what James is teaching here. Faith is an active thing. It's a working thing. Faith without works is dead. So true faith is more than a mere claim. True faith is more than a mere agreement with truth. And true faith 
inevitably produces obedience to God. Faith works. And so let me close with this word of exhortation. The application to this passage is not to go out and make a list of all kinds of works to start doing. In fact, James gives no imperatives, no commands in this passage. This was amazing to me when I saw this. Because this is a book full of imperatives. This is a book full of things that we should be doing. But there are none in this passage. Because the point of this passage is that true faith evidences itself in a life of loving works. If you have true faith, it will be evident in your desire to obey and please God, even if sporadic and weak, praise God. If you don't have faith, it will be evident in your lack of God-glorifying deeds of love and compassion. And so the point is to examine whether you have true faith or not. That's the point. Is your faith real? Is it real or is it merely confessed? Is it merely an agreement with truth? And the good news this morning is that whatever your answer to that question, Jesus is a great and powerful Savior who welcomes all who come to Him by faith. Jesus said that all who come to Him, He will never cast out, but they will be given the reward of His sufferings. But to those who refuse to trust Him, to those who refuse to embrace Him as Lord and Savior, Jesus would say, depart from Me, for I never knew you. Beloved, turn from your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus now. Look to Him, treasure Him, embrace Him as your greatest treasure. And that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper today. The Lord's Supper is really the point of the application. Do we have true faith? Are we willing to declare that our hope and our trust is in Jesus alone today? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim Jesus' death until He comes. So we, we, we proclaim the work of Jesus is finished. We proclaim it's sufficient for us when we partake of these elements. And so if Jesus is your treasure, if He's the object of your faith, we invite you to joyfully partake of these elements with us. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, if your faith is merely empty words, please do not partake. For your own soul's sake, just take this time to pray and ask God to open your eyes and to give you genuine faith in Jesus. And so we're going to take a moment of silence, a chance for us all to reflect, to look to Jesus, to evaluate our faith in Him. And then I'm going to pray for us and lead us in partaking of these elements. So let's spend some time in reflection and silence now. Lord God, your word is true and trustworthy. Just as we prayed at the beginning, 
We thank you for speaking to us. And as you've spoken to us from your word, our desire is not to now turn away from your word and do whatever we want and think whatever we want, believe whatever we want. But our desire is to submit to you, humbly submit to you. So make us doers of your word and not merely hearers. Fill us with deeds of love and compassion toward each other and toward this lost and broken world. Give us true faith. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. I pray that as they evaluate their faith, that you would show them whether their faith is real or not. And that regardless of whether our faith is real or not, we, we would all turn to you and trust in Jesus freshly today. We thank you for this practice of the Lord's Supper that reminds us, that points us, that, that proclaims to us that our Savior was willing to lay down his life, that he laid down his life so that we can know this forgiveness and this freedom. So Lord, help us to partake and to proclaim now that we believe Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for us. Help us to proclaim until you come. We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're going to partake with us, go ahead and find the prepackaged elements in the rack in front of you. If you remove the top thin layer, it reveals the bread. The bread symbolizes something for us. The bread symbolizes that the body of Jesus was broken on our behalf. That Jesus willingly gave up His own self so that we could know peace and hope and joy and forgiveness. We don't believe that this bread magically changes into the the body of Jesus or anything like that. We believe it, it represents something. But more than just representing something, this, this bread helps us to commune, to fellowship with, to receive grace from the Lord Jesus as we remember. And as we do more than remember, but we believe, we trust that this is all our hope, that this is all our faith. Jesus laid down His life for us, for our sins, so that we could have all of these good and great promises as yes and amen in Him. And so the Apostle Paul said, They received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He'd given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Lord Jesus, we pause to thank you again. Thank you for what you accomplished when you laid down your life on that cross. We thank you for the forgiveness, for the acceptance, for the hope and joy that we have because of your body that was broken for us. We give you praise and honor for you are worthy. And we put our faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. The thicker foil layer reveals the cup. The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was willingly poured out for our sins. The book of Hebrews says, what, what, what can wash away sins? Like, like without, the blood, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But can the blood of bulls and goats forgive us? No. Only the precious blood of Christ. Only the spotless blood of 
of the Lord Jesus can wash away our many sins. And so as we partake, we remember. But we do more than remember. We believe. We trust. We put our faith in the blood of Jesus. That it is sufficient to cleanse us from all our sins. The Apostle Paul said, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your death for our sins. We thank you real particularly that your blood is powerful enough to cleanse us from all sin. We thank you that you shed your own blood so that we could have this life both now and for eternity. Lord, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to glorify you in every possible way. We pray you'd help us in your great name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and sing, Behold the Lamb.